Welcome to Unscripted Startups. I'm your host, Cameron Stack, here in the beautiful Silicon Slopes, Utah. This podcast is the place to be to receive actionable insight and advice for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Michael Petrie, the founder of Petros Solutions the go-to place for prototyping help, whether it's ad design or rapid prototyping. So tell me a little bit about your experience. I know you got your master's degree at the University of Oklahoma in mechanical engineering, but I want to hear a little more about how you got interested in engineering and what led you to where you are today. Sure. Uh, so first of all, thanks, Cameron, for having me on. This is this is awesome. So I grew up with a mechanical engineer as a dad. So I uh, it wasn't uncommon for him to come home with really cruddy prototypes just kind of thrown together on the table. And I was always fascinated by what he was doing and, and thought that it was really cool to be able to work with your hands. But the digital aspect of what he was doing was really cool to me as well. He was working in a software called AutoCAD. But yeah, that was the early stages of, of CAD development and design. So that's kind of what got me interested in mechanical engineering in, in general. And then when I went to school, and like you said, at the University of Oklahoma, I told myself um, that I was going to take mechanical engineering classes until I took one that I didn't like. And it okay. just never happened. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I thought mechanical engineering was a really versatile degree. You can, mm. you can apply it in a lot of different areas. And as I'll, I'll explain what my story is, you'll, you'll see that I applied it in a lot of different okay. areas. Uh, when I was at the University of, of Oklahoma, I did an extracurricular program called the uh, Agile Product Design Program. And it was, like I said, outside of the, the college itself, but it was giving engineers, designers, and business people kind of a chance to work together on product design problems. So we developed a product there and co-founded a company called Lavate, and it was basically a aftermarket accessory for manual wheelchairs to help wheelchair users interact with their environment a little bit better. Um, you know, when you're in a seated position, you lose anywhere from a foot and a half to two feet of, oh. of vertical reach. So you think about being a wheelchair user in a grocery store or a bar or even in your own house, the, the idea of reaching up to, you know, a top cabinet even to get a plate is, is a really big deal. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, so we, we developed a rough concept of a prototype at that point. It, was, it wasn't really a fully fleshed out design, but we founded a company around it, which was a lot of fun, uh, filed for some patents and that thing. So that was, that was really cool. When I graduated, though, I was about to get married wanted to live somewhere else for a bit and on top of that I needed a paycheck. <laughs> so didn't have the didn't have the time to to grow a company without any sort of income for the time being. So my wife and I moved up here to Salt Lake City. I worked for the Air Force for about a year and a half. I remembered the product development that I had done in college, so I worked for a company here in Salt Lake City for a bit and then thought that I could do it better. So that's when I founded Petra Solutions. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit more about Petra's solution. What do you do on a day-to-day prototyping process and yeah. how you go about doing that? Sure. You know, the elevator pitch for Petra Solutions is that we're a, an affordable consumer product development company. I saw a niche in the market. I saw a gap in the market for product development going from a concept to a fully f- fleshed out design and then finally going to manufacture. What I mean when I say product development. Specifically, like I said, we work on consumer product development. So that's things that everyday folks buy, nothing industrial or commercial. Even more specific than that, we tend to work on mostly hard goods products. So that's metal, plastic, and wood, not usually soft goods. So soft goods is fabrics, backpacks, tents, that sort of thing. Uh, We do have some experience in that, but not really our expertise. Like I said, I'm a mechanical engineer. I like things that I can touch and feel and 
break and mold and manufacture and all that stuff. The last kind of qualification is that we tend to work on things with limited to no electronics. So we helped a guy, for example, develop a keyboard, a, uh, a MIDI piano a keyboard. Slimmer version, I should say, of what is already on the market. Okay. So we were in the process of helping him with a electronic, with the electronics just necessary to light up the LEDs so that he could do a Kickstarter campaign. For Kickstarter, you don't necessarily need to have all the electronics worked out. You really just need to have a prototype of what it looks like and how it feels and that sort of thing to take a video so that you can put it on your page. So that's kind of the extent to where we feel comfortable with as far as the electronics go, um, kind of things to mimic what real life electronics are. Yeah, as far as the process goes, most people would say that there's be eight different steps in a product development process, and we can help with basically every step along the way. So the eight steps are, and the titles are a little bit subjective, right? Okay. Other people call them different things, but they're essentially all the same. Basically, we have a discovery research phase, then we go into industrial design, 3D modeling, engineering analysis, prototyping, fundraising, manufacturing, and fulfillment. So the first phase we like to call discovery research. Usually that, that involves maybe two kinds of research. The first is maybe a patent search, looking into what the, pr the prior art looks like for your idea. Has someone already claimed this, this concept? And the other kind of research is typically market research, looking at what other people already have on the market, even if it's not patented. If they've already got a product that does something perfectly, then there's not much of a market for you. I was working with a guy who wanted to develop a product that would clean your, your paintbrushes more easily. Uh, this was a while back, and we, we started looking into it. We, st we got into this phase, and we found a product that mounts onto a drill. So it has a specialized bit that you mount into an electric drill, and you take your, your long paint roller, and you s shove it on there, and then you turn the drill, and it just it spins, it okay. spins all the paint off. Okay, yeah, I think I might have seen that. Yeah, it, it's a really cool invention, but it was, it was so good that we were like, man, I don't know if we can beat this, especially for the price point. It was like yeah. 15 bucks or something like that. So I like the phrase, fail early, fail often. A lot of entrepreneurs don't like that, that word fail, <laughs> but it's important, right? And I think that it helps failing early, failing often is trying to understand what you don't know, what you haven't figured out yet, as early on as possible, or as little time investment and money investment as possible. Yeah. And that's kind of exactly what we did in that phase. Yeah, failure, I feel like, is a super important topic that not very many people want to talk about because there's nothing glamorous about failing. But if you fail early and often, you're able to use those failures and build upon it and make it a success. Whereas there isn't much learning and success. There's learning and failure. And if you fail while you're still young in the business and in your life, then when you get older, you're less likely to have a humongous failure. I feel like failure is something that no one wants to talk about, but yet it's so important because there are very few companies and very few startups that their first product or their first company or whatever they do, the first thing they do is not going to be a success. I mean, even look at Mark Zuckerberg, his face smash. Like, that wasn't a success. I mean, he got kicked out of, <laughs> out of Harvard for that. But like... Yeah. And as long as you're able to learn from it, and what I like to say is there is no failure besides the failure of not learning from your mistakes. So if you're able to learn from it and grow from it, it's not a failure. It's just a learning lesson. And, and then that comes down to the fact of people people's definition of what a failure or success is. Some people are like, 100K is a success, and 
some people are like, if I don't make more than $5 million in one year, that is an utter failure. So it really comes down to your definition because my past company, it definitely took us a, a bit of time to grow and develop the products and stuff. So some people might see that as a failure. I saw it as a learning lesson, but yeah, I mean, we made money and it was super profitable. It just was slower than I want. So is that a failure? Is that a success? I mean, it really depends on people's definition. But yeah, I think that's an excellent point you brought up and I just wanted to like add my two cents. Yeah, and I've experienced the exact same thing with Petrus, right? Um, the, The upfront costs were relatively minimal. I didn't really have any upfront costs. I wasn't a product-based company. I was, I'm a service-based company, right? But business has been really slow. <laughs> and, it's, and it's growing. And it, and it is growing considerably. Uh, it's like probably two to 300% growth this year. But it's not quite as much as I want it yeah. to. So it's like it's, there's that internal struggle for the entrepreneur of am I succeeding or am um, I failing? What's yeah. my standard that I'm, that I'm trying to shoot for? Absolutely. If you want to continue on with the honor process, sure. I'll, so we I'll, just I'll chime in if I have a thought. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we we just talked about kind of the discovery research phase again. That's patent research and market research. Once you have that under your belt, everything's looking good, good to go, thumbs up. Then we go into an industrial design phase. Some people call it product design. That's basically what it is. And again, the fail early, fail often is exactly what we're doing here. We are sketching out as much as we can think of about this product design. Uh-huh. Okay. So imagine that I'm designing a water bottle. I'm thinking about every little detail that I can. I'm trying to sketch it out because usually that's the most efficient way to think through your idea. You can create a physical prototype. You can create a 3D model, which we'll talk about later. But usually that's much more time intensive. And just by doing a quick sketch, you'll, you'll realize what, what you have wrong in your head. Yeah. Um, and even the best industrial designers, the best engineers, this is kind of an overarching thing, best industrial designers, best engineers, best manufacturers, best prototypers, as soon as you go through your iterative process that we're talking about here and that you're kind of uh, basing this this uh, podcast off of, Cameron, you realize what you missed. You're, oh. you're going to – even the best people will only get 85% of the way there the first go. So don't, uh, don't kick yourself if you mess it up. Okay. It's part of, yeah. part of the process. So in this industrial design phase, we're, we're sketching everything out that we can. Again, going back to the water bottle, you're thinking about what the lid looks like, how it attaches. Um, how much water is it going to hold? What's the overall shape? What is it going to be made of? How many, what are its value, what's its value proposition, right? You have water bottles that are the inexpensive versions. They are like the flexible um, pouches, right? And they store really compactly. Um, You have other ones that are kind of mid-range ones. They're stainless steel. I've got one here. And it's not really thermally insulating that much, uh, but it's it's a decent water Uh bottle. And then you have hydro flask and like top-of-the-line stuff where yeah. they're charging anywhere from 30 to 60 bucks for a water bottle that is like crazy thermally insulated, crazy durable, really sleek, really simple design. Um, it, you, you have to understand where your market is and uh-huh. what, you're, what you're pushing towards. Um, I was just reading a book last night, basically the marketing principle of if you are everything to everyone, you're going to be nothing to no one. Pick a niche, pick a value proposition that is as specific as you can get, and then just dive into it. I think entrepreneurs, especially product developers, inventors, in, in other words, inventors or entrepreneurs that are going towards a physical product, they tend to think, oh, I need to, mar- I need to design this such that anyone can use it. Uh-huh. It's definitely a pitfall. Um, in my experience, that doesn't work out well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Whether it's hosting a podcast or starting a business, 
it's a disservice because like if you try to get everyone to like you or try to market to everyone you'll market to no one mm-hmm. you know whereas like with podcasts let's just use that as an example the more niche specific you can get the more of a chance that you will actually have a successful podcast a radio it's more about the mass audience mm-hmm. but if it's a podcast or youtube or online social media content is all about being as specific as possible and targeting that niche then trying to get everyone to like your mm-hmm. content because it just won't you know so i think that's an excellent point especially in entrepreneurship you got to be like super specific on who you want to target mm-hmm. and there are a lot of companies i've noticed that like yes they're in the same field and they offer the same services but they target different audiences, different people in that market. So they're still able to make a good amount of money. They might not Mm -hmm. lead the the industry or that product sector, but they're able to carve out a nice chunk for them. And then it comes down to what you consider sustainable and successful. Some people might say if they carve out a 300K niche yearly recurring revenue, that's successful. And some people are like, if I don't make 30 million, then it's not worth my time. Yeah, you know, sure. Kind of carving out that niche and making sure that you're able to like make profitable and stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. One other thing that I want to mention with this industrial design phase, this is kind of where you first start to do what most people would call prototype, uh, a physical prototype. Yeah. At this stage in the game, though, again, you don't want to go to 3D modeling, you don't want to go to 3D printing, you don't want to go to any any of that higher-end oh, or yeah. time-intensive things. Uh-huh. Usually in this phase, you'll do one of two things or maybe both. Okay, experiential prototype or what we'll call a sketch model. So an experiential prototype is best illustrated by an example. When I was working on the latte, this uh, wheelchair accessory that I was talking about earlier when I was in school, we had a really rough concept of what we wanted to do. But we wanted to test the theory and the assumptions that this product was based off of. There are some key points there, okay? Um, One is that a wheelchair user likes getting elevated and is okay getting elevated. I'll say it that way, right? Um, and the, the manner in which that elevation happens was also in question. There are products out there on the market that you, that you put on top of the wheelchair, in other words, in the seat of the wheelchair, uh-huh. and then the user sits on top of that. Uh-huh. Wheelchair itself sits on the ground, and this product raises the person up. But what we found when we did our experiential prototype, which essentially was us bringing wheelchair users into our studio and putting reams of paper on the wheelchair seat and then having them sit on top of the reams yeah. of paper... They were like, I don't like this. And we asked, okay, why? Why don't you like that? Because we were simulating the experience of our product, Uh even if our product wasn't even there yet, right? It was just a concept. Uh, Why do you not like this? They said, to be honest, it's because I don't feel secure. Uh Um, I don't have my foot rests, I don't have my arm rests, and I don't have my back rest. And all those things are security blankets, uh, both, both... psychologically and physically, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah. They, they do provide some stability, but they're also an, an emotional teddy bear, an emotional security blanket. So those were a couple things that we tested. The other one was how uh, heavy we, it needed to be. So we took just some backpacks and threw some weights in there of differing values and said, okay, lean over your chair to the right side, let's say, and try and place this underneath your chair on kind of the, the underside of your seat, if you want to think of it uh-huh. that way. And we kind of found our sweet spot. It needed to be somewhere between five and 10 pounds. If you go any larger than that, it ends up getting too heavy. So experiential prototyping is is really important, but I think entrepreneurs and developers in general miss that. Um, Don't be afraid to throw something out there and to test something 
that is very rough around the edges. Cardboard, duct tape, styrofoam, markers, poster board, anything that you can think of to even get close to your idea, whether it's a physical prototype or, again, this experiential prototyping, is, is incredibly valuable. Um, I'll do one more caveat on that, though. While we were doing this prototyping, we also had another round where we had wheelchair users come into our studio and we showed them an initial prototype and it was really rough, like I said, uh -huh. duct tape and styrofoam. And they couldn't get past what it looked like to tell us how they felt about the concept. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, totally. uh, I think in us in our society, we have everyone's used to Apple products. I'll call, yeah. I'll call yeah. them that. They're very polished. They're very well thought out. They've required thousands, uh, tens of thousands of man hours to design and get just right. No, and the, and the kind of thing that I'm describing, again, styrofoam, duct tape, those sorts of materials is usually called a sketch model. So that was the other one that I had mentioned earlier. Be very careful and conscientious of who you're showing your sketch models to because there's a very good chance that if you don't pick the right person, you won't get any valuable feedback. In fact, you might even get skewed feedback. Okay. They'll say, oh, I don't like the color. Well, uh -huh. that's, not <laughs> that's not really what we're testing right now, right? Yeah. We're, we're testing the overall concept and the functionality. So those are the other two things I'd say about the industrial design phase. Um, don't be afraid to create experiential prototypes or sketch models to test your concept as early on and as cheaply as possible. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that, that everyone wants to create all these like super glamorous products and that's why I, I think a lot of people like to 3D print the mm -hmm. stuff because it looks cool yep. and stuff. But what are your thoughts on doing the sketch models and creating an MVP, uh, so minimal viable product, and how to get the feedback from that without having like adding all this glamorous stuff. Because yes, you want to add that in the end, but not all of them want to hear your definition. Okay, of it. so in my opinion, an MVP is basically the minimum set of features and functionality that a product or a design can have in order to be viable, in order for it to be a valid product on the market. Inventors tend to have a hard time doing that. They tend to think larger and more complex and just more. <laughs> so the process of whittling down your features and your, your size even and your functionality is very, very important, but sometimes it's very difficult. The, fi the kinds of prototyping that I've mentioned so far, again, experiential prototyping and sketch modeling, I wouldn't call those MVPs, right? Again, cardboard and styrofoam aren't really going to be a viable product. You're never going to be able to sell that to someone, uh -huh. right? But they're critical in, in learning along the way such that you then can spend more time and more effort refining the, not just the concept but the look of it as well to where you can get to that MVP. You can get to that minimum viable product. Um, I think people jump the gun way too quick. 3D printing is, to be honest, like it's maybe the third iteration of our prototypes. Okay, yeah. And one of those reasons is because it requires a 3D model, which is kind of what our next phase is, right? Uh -huh. So 3D modeling, once you have the concept in the industrial design phase, once you've thought it out, once you've sketched it out, you've done your sketch models, you've done your experiential prototypes, you can now create a digital representation of your idea in the computer uh, using CAD software or computer-aided design software. Uh, SolidWorks is a good one. Fusion 360 has free licenses. There's all kinds of different CAD softwares out there that you can use. Um, in that context, in that phase, it gives you a lot of ability. Uh, I was mentioning to you, Cameron, that you know the best the best designers and engineers in the world are only going to get it right, uh, you know, eighty five percent right on the first go. Uh -huh. That three D modeling phase is one of those turning points because okay. you see the model, you're able to orbit around it, you're able to take very precise measurements, 
both on dimensions, but also for weight and volume, which is really important from a manufacturing perspective. If you are shooting for a specific amount of material for this thing so that it's economically viable, that, that's the phase where you're gonna find out if you've hit it or not, <laughs> right? But once you have that 3D model and why it's so important is not just the, the dimensions and the things that you can do with it in the computer, but it's also what you can do once you export it. That's where you get into the, the 3D printing. There's usually one phase that happens right before that, which I'll mention very briefly, is called engineering analysis um, or finite element analysis, depending on who you're talking okay. to. Okay. <laughs> Basically, once you have that 3D model, you can blow it up into a gazillion little pieces uh, in the computer. And the computer can use physics laws to say, uh, you know, let's, let's go with the water bottle example. You drop test in this engineering analysis phase. You take your water bottle in the computer, you drop it from a height of 10 feet or whatever, and it lands on a corner. It lands on the corner of the bottom, bottom lip, let's say. The computer can say, okay, this is the amount of force that it's experiencing, and now it's gonna propagate through all these little pieces. Is any one of them gonna break? Okay. Are they, are they strong enough? Is, is, it gonna be, is it gonna bend too much, or is it gonna be able to absorb it? Uh -huh. That's kind of what that engineering analysis phase uh, represents. That phase is usually not necessary. The vast majority of products, especially consumer products, don't need that phase. But once you get into more high-end products or uh, industrial commercial kind of products, uh -huh. you definitely want to do something like that uh -huh. to, to test that. Yeah, because I imagine for some kind of technology or something super high-end, you would want to do that test for. But Sometimes there's value in creating a prototype and then just dropping it <laughs> and seeing if it breaks, right? Um, you can do that sort of quote-unquote engineering analysis in the real world as well, depending on what the product is, right? Um, if it's going to take you, I don't know, $100,000 to produce a prototype to then do a drop test with, and maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it is worth yeah. taking some time and doing a digital engineering analysis instead. Um, it just depends on what the product is and what the situation of the entrepreneur is. So once you, again, we're kind of doing a little bit of de uh, detours depending yeah. on what the product is, right? Uh -huh. But once you have your 3D model, you, maybe you've done the engineering analysis, maybe you haven't, then you can, can create a prototype. Um, almost always these days, those, that prototyping phase, and I, I'm putting quotes around that, right? Prototyping happens throughout the entire process. Yeah. But the explicit prototyping phase that most people think of when, when you hear prototyping are you know, 3D printing products, um, or using what's called CNC. Uh, so CNC stands for Computer Numeric Control. Okay. It's basically a drill bit on the end of a end of a moving spindle. Okay. So you yeah. can take a big block. Uh, so so, three D printing is called additive manufacturing. In other words, you start with nothing and you only produce that what we what you need. CNC again, Computer Numeric Control is what's called subtractive manufacturing. You start off with a block of wood or metal or plastic even, and you carve away what you don't need and you're left with what you do, okay? okay? Um, certain designs require one or the other. 3D printing is, is excellent and is, definitely has its place. And in this part of the process is usually when we'll do a 3D print. We're at a very low resolution, out of very rough materials. The everyday folks 3D printing is usually broken up into two different categories, FDM and SLA in that, in that order. Okay. FDM stands for filament deposition method, I believe. It's basically a spool of plastic that is run through a heated extruder, uh -huh. and that heated extruder traces out a specific layer, and then it moves up and it traces out another layer. That's by far the most common 3D printing, by far the most inexpensive. 
but you lose a lot with that. You lose a lot of strength and you lose a lot of surface finish. So the next level up is called SLA. I think it's stereolithography. Basically, you have a pool of resin and a laser, and the resin reacts to the light in the laser. So the laser traces out a specific layer, a specific path, uh -huh. and then the platform moves up a little bit, and then it does it again. Okay. okay? Uh, with that, you get much better surface finishes, much better um, strength. The industry leaders have come up with a ton of different t kinds of resin, which means that you can experiment with a lot of different kinds of materials. So that's usually the highest level that you want to go up to as far as 3D printing is concerned. You go any higher than that, you get really expensive. Uh, for example, if you want to print in multiple colors, that's very, very expensive, uh -huh. usually not worth it. You can usually replicate that, especially if it's just one or two offs. You can replicate that via other methods. Literally just manually painting something uh -huh. on is, is yeah. sometimes a better option. Um, okay. So yeah. let's see. Uh, after you've done a 3D print, we sometimes do what's called RTV. Uh, and sorry, listeners, I'm getting pretty technical with this, but stick with me. So RTV stands for Room Temperature Vulcanization. So basically, if you want the... Hmm, how deep do I want to get here? One level above this SLA 3D printing, if you want really good surface finishes, but you want even more materials that you can play with and even better tolerances, you can go to RTV molding. RTV molding is taking your 3D printed part, you're polishing it down until it's like literally uh, glass smooth. Oh, okay. It's beautiful, beautifully like finished. That. And then you put it in a box and you pour silicone around it. When you do that, once the silicone cures, you can cut it in half, you take your 3D printed part out, and now you have a silicone mold. Okay, okay that's super cool. It's really, really cool, and it's very inexpensive. You can, like I said, you can experiment with a ton of different materials. Um, but basically, that's your that's your step up from 3D printing, where you can get much better advantages. But you don't have to pay for the really expensive manufacturing equipment that you would need when you're going in mass, when you're producing in scale. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I've had a a brief knowledge with 3D printers. I mean, I've done some really rudimentary stuff on them. But yeah, they seem like it's helpful for a certain stage in your business or for hobby projects, but not everyone needs to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's super cool to say I 3D printed this or yeah. have something physical. And like if you're doing some kind of like bottles, maybe that's a good way to get a physical prototype, but not everyone needs to do it. So Yeah. One of the things that entrepreneurs, especially here in Utah, I've noticed that Utah is a DIY mentality, uh -huh. right? It's, it's, a, it's a state filled with inventors that have a ton of ideas, but they also think that they can do everything themselves. What that results in is pros and cons, right? They're able to develop their products for a lot less money, but it takes a lot longer, yeah. right? And there is, I've, I've learned that there's definitely value in paying someone to do something that you are not an expert in, uh -huh. okay? Because yeah. they're gonna spend a lot, a lot less time doing it. It will cost you some money, but they're gonna do it much better and, and, and much quicker. So I think that 3D printing and 3D modeling is one of those areas. I think that most people think, oh, it's 3D printing, anyone can do it. There's a lot of skill that goes into uh -huh. 3D modeling, for example, and knowing what materials to use and what resolution to print at. And again, which kind of printer to use? I, I mentioned FDM and SLA. Those are just two kinds. Those are the main kinds, but there's uh -huh. a, tons of other ones as well, right? The lesson to your listeners is to, is to understand where your weaknesses are 
and where your strengths are and to allow someone, if you can financially afford it, to step into the role of those weaknesses and perform those tasks a lot better than you could. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because this this podcast is all about helping self-funded businesses grow, but it comes to a point where you're spending so much time or focusing on something that, yes, it would cost a little bit of money, but it'd free you up to focus on more important things. So I feel like that is a really important thing that you have to really think about. Is it worth paying for it or is it worth spending the time? And because you can obviously you can't do everything. So mm-hmm. you should focus your time and energy into things you are an expert on and then let someone handle the rest. But mm-hmm. obviously there is a give and a take a balance there because when you are self-funding it, you can't hire someone to do everything you would like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a pretty good segue into the next phase if you want me to keep going. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> so once you have the prototypes, you've again, each, each part of this process, you're iterating. You're thinking through, okay, what works on this prototype and what doesn't? Again, 3D printed and then RTV, like every step in this uh-huh. entire process that I've said so far. You're learning from your mistakes, you're tweaking it. Once you have a prototype that is really cosmetically beautiful um, and functions just like you want it to, again, maybe it's just a one or two off. It doesn't have to be reproducible for a low amount of money, right? Uh (laughs) You just have to create one of these things. Uh, You have a couple options. You have to go to, you have to get money, most people, at least most of these self-funded listeners that you have, myself included, can't afford to go straight to manufacturing, right? Um, Injection molding is by far the most common manufacturing process for plastics. Uh, It's one of the most common in the entire world. So let's say you're going in with a plastic product and you need to injection mold it. Most molds are anywhere from five to $500,000. And it really depends on the size that you're dealing with as well as the amount of material that you're injecting into it. But let's say you want to go that route. Again, like I said, myself included, I can't afford to pay for a mold. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to go fundraise. I can do that one of two ways. I can go to crowdfunding or I can go to more of a traditional uh, investor. Regardless of which way you go, though, you're really going to need a cosmetic prototype. You're going to need something that looks beautiful yeah. and functions very well. Even if you're talking to your, your grandma, right, um, she's going to want to see what this thing is going to look like. If you're going to go to a professional investor group, they're going to want to see what this looks like. If you go the crowdfunding route, let's say you go to Kickstarter. That's one of the most common crowdfunding platforms. Kickstarter now requires that you have a functioning proof of concept before you actually start your campaign. Once you have funding, again, whether you're self-funding or you're going to an investor or you are doing these crowdfunding campaigns, then you typically go straight to manufacturing. That manufacturing phase is, again, a little bit of a misnomer, right? There's even some prototyping in there. So once you, usually you've found your manufacturer before you're fundraising, right? You've gotten a quote from them, you have an you, you like them, you, you know, you have good rapport okay. with them. So you're going back to that manufacturer and they typically will enable you to go through a little bit of a iterative prototyping process with them. So for example, if you're going with an injection molding manufacturer, they can do what are called mold safe changes. So essentially, if you're creating a plastic product, in order to create the mold of that, the negative of that, you're carving away what is going to be occupied by your product. Once you carve it away, you can't add it back in, yeah. right? So it, it's metal, right? Once you uh-huh. take it away, you can't get it back. So mold safe changes are essentially you start off with the design that is the smallest possible, literally the smallest amount of material that you think 
you would possibly ever go with, right? And you start with the mold maker creating that version. And then maybe you do a test shot with it. You, you shoot it with plastic, you let it, to, you let it cool, and then you have your, your product, right? You maybe test that out and you say, is this, is this gonna work, right? Because that's the one that you wanna go with ideally, right? Because it uses the least amount of material, it's maybe the simplest. If it doesn't work, now you still have the option to carve away more of the mold and introduce more volume into your design, if that makes sense. You're yeah. using more material now, um, but at least you've gone through this iterative process, this, this piecemeal process. You've taken your time, you've been patient as an entrepreneur, <laughs> which we sometimes have an issue with, but you're able to have that flexibility along the way if you're smart about how you make those, those changes in the manufacturing process. I think that's super important and it's like, measure twice, cut once, you know, yep. you can always cut something shorter, but you can't cut it longer. Yep. Uh, some manufacturers will try to rope you into very large orders. They have what's called a minimum order quantity uh -huh. or an MOQ. And I strongly recommend to all my clients that they not go with a very large MOQ initially. Um, usually what that means, the stereotype, right, is that in China, they have very large MOQs. Here in the U.S., get charged more for the entire process, for the manufacturing process and the, the per unit cost, but your MOQ is a lot lower and you have a better relationship with the manufacturer. I've heard horror stories of Chinese manufacturers because they're so far away and because they have so many clients. If they make a mistake, they're, they're less likely to fix it, less likely to work with you on it. Whereas I think the stereotype in here in America is that manufacturer is responsible for the quality and the quantity, making you as the, as the customer happy. And that's, that's a really important difference. We want to share your story. So if you're subscribed to this podcast, go in the show notes down below and click our email. Put in the email message, share my story. Tell us about your business. How is it doing? What are the hurdles you're facing? What are you doing well? We will pick one person we really want to, to be shared on our podcast and give back in a meaningful and impactful way. So don't forget to smash that subscribe button and start downloading each and every episode of our podcast. It only takes than 30 seconds and it means the absolute world to us. I hope you guys have an incredible week and don't forget to live life 1% better each and every day. Until next time, this has been a Unscripted Startups production. Don't forget to check us out online at unscriptedstartups.com or on your favorite social media platform at Unscripted Startups.